This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by Andrew Harvey. For Jesus, the kingdom was a present mystical reality, the only authentic reality to which all other loves and actions are to be directed. Its splendor is always around us, and only our blindness and driven desperate attachments to all the various forms of conventional wisdom prevent us from seeing the wonder of it, living in it, and living it out so that others can catch flame from its fire. Jesus knew that participation in this kingdom is open, without exception, to everyone. In Jesus' overwhelming experience, the kingdom is now, is here, is the inmost heart of reality itself, the fire of love and justice blazing at the heart of all things and beings. What Jesus is trying to wake us up to is the depth of our own individual responsibility to be a flame of the fire of the kingdom. A reading of scripture from Psalm 51 to 6, as rendered by Nan Merrill. The beloved, through the energy of love, brought forth the world. From the rising to the setting sun, love radiates out to all the nations, perfect in beauty. The beloved has come and will not keep silence, for divine love is a consuming fire, calling forth heaven and earth to the judgment of all peoples. Gather around, my loyal friends, all who by repentance and recompense follow the inner way. The universe forever proclaims justice, and the blood's indwelling presence guides those who hear with their hearts. Hear what the the Spirit is saying to the Church. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amy. Holy Gospel according to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. For the Word of God in Scripture, for the Word of God within us, for the Word of God among us. As a child, uh, 
in Sunday school, uh, many of us learned that uh, a safe answer to most questions was what? Oh, there you go. The Bible says so. Jesus, right? Often it's Jesus, you know. Who created the world? Jesus. How many days was Noah on the ark? Oh, wow. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. It also doesn't answer the question, who is Jesus? Or who was Jesus? It's a difficult question, right? One that has perplexed uh, humanity ever since Jesus walked on the earth. Wayne Meeks, a professor of biblical studies at Yale University, notes, every Christian sooner or later has to ask the question, who was Jesus really? And he says, we ask this in our age in a special way because we're very historically oriented. We are modern or perhaps postmodern people. But all of us have a sense that we want to know what things were really like. We want to know what Jesus was really like. Well, perhaps our story today will bring us some clarity. But we need to back up just a little bit first to chapter 8. Uh, in Mark. So our reading was chapter 9. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus himself has asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? As noted, a question we often ask ourselves, who is Jesus? And for many of us, there's a lot riding on this question. A number of us have been raised in traditions where answering that question correctly might be the difference between being in or being out, between being a true Christian and being something else. Jesus himself seems interested in the question, almost as if he too is searching for his identity. Who do people say that I am? Or what's the word on the street? The disciples respond with, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But then Jesus presses it further. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And how does Peter respond? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond to Peter's response? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Peter, it seems, gets the answer right, and he gets rewarded. Many of us are familiar with that system. Rewards for right answers. It's worth noting, though, that that's how the Gospel of Matthew shares the story in Matthew 16. But what about in Mark chapter 8, uh, where our reading comes from? In Mark, it's a little bit different, or maybe even very different. Jesus asks the same questions, and Peter responds with simply, you are the Christ. No mention of Son of God. And how does Jesus reply? He doesn't. He doesn't, at least not directly. Nothing like we read in Matthew's account. You're right, Peter, and because you're right, here's what you win. I'm going to build my church, 
on you, or through you. What Mark does report is that Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. It's almost like, nice try, but can we just not talk about this? In fact, forget we talked, and don't tell anyone we had this conversation. And it's helpful to remember that Mark is our earliest account, our earliest gospel account of the life of Jesus. And so it's not unreasonable to assume, as many scholars do, that as Matthew and Luke write their Gospels, they had the text of Mark kind of sitting before them. Right? It had been in circulation. They had some awareness of it. And as they're writing uh, their own Gospel accounts on occasion, they added some detail, perhaps details that they knew or other word-of-mouth accounts, or perhaps on occasion even embellished the accounts to make sure that they got their point across. That's kind of how storytelling and retelling often goes. Jesus asks the disciples who he is. They give, us, they give some responses, and Jesus leaves us guessing. What he does say after this exchange is that he is going to suffer. And he refers to himself not with any of the titles that the disciples have guessed at, but as the Son of Man which is kind of an enigmatic title, meaning perhaps son of humanity or the human one. And so Jesus notes that he is going to suffer and die. And Peter says, no, 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 that'll never happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So rather than Peter getting it right, Mark's gospel seems to say the opposite. So who exactly is Jesus? John Carroll is a professor of sociology in Melbourne, Australia, and he writes this uh, really interesting uh, story on the gospel of Mark, almost a retelling of the gospel of Mark, entitled The Existential Jesus. And on the back, he says, Jesus is the man who made the West, but is he relevant to a modern world shaken by crises of meaning? The churches have characterized him as Jesus the carer and comforter, as Jesus the good shepherd, meek and, shepherd, meek and mild, who preaches sin and forgiveness. But this church Jesus is not remotely like the existential, the existential hero portrayed in the first and most potent telling of his life story, that of Mark. Mark's Jesus is a lonely, mysterious stranger. His mission is dark and obscure. Everything he tries fails. This existential Jesus speaks today. He does not spout doctrine. He has no interest in sin. His focus is not on some afterlife. He gestures enigmatically from within his own grueling experience, inviting the reader to walk in his shoes. And along the way, he singles out humankind's central question, who am I? The existential Jesus is the West's great teacher on the nature of being. Maybe you all want to borrow this now, but I only have one copy, so we'll have to maybe sign it out. Uh, but Carol uh, notes in this text that Jesus' rage against Peter 
get behind me, Satan, shows that perhaps he is implicitly rejecting the Jewish vocation of Messiah that Peter is putting on him. A Messiah who would rescue them immediately. In effect, asserting that I am not the Christ. If you think I am, he implies, it is the devil who drives your thoughts. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm not who you think I am. But Peter has been so steeped in religious tradition that he has little capacity for new understanding. A challenge that many of us raised in the church know well. Many of us have been taught since we were knee-high to whatever, a grasshopper, that the essential question in life is not who am I, but who is Jesus? Right? That's the most important thing for many of us. And we've been given the answer in fairly explicit terms. In fact, if you sincerely asked, who was Jesus? Oh, maybe we have an answer. (laughs) Don't leave us hanging. If you sincerely asked, who is Jesus in these parts, implying that you didn't know the answer, you might just be asked to leave town. So I will keep this conversation under wraps. <laughs> Carol goes so far as to say that Peter has exchanged his soul for a defensive and mindless parroting of doctrine. And he says that this is a typical human response to acute disorienting anxiety. What is that anxiety? Well, Peter thinks he knows exactly who Jesus is. Messiah, and all that that means, divine rescue, conquering of Rome, etc. And when Jesus reveals a different plan that leads to suffering and death, he doesn't have categories for that, and anxiety results. The greater the anxiety, the more dogmatic we might become in defense of a doctrine as absolute truth. When the world is uncertain, we want to fall back on certainty often, right? It's a very human thing to do. And I would say that when naming Jesus a specific way becomes more important than listening to what Jesus himself is saying, well, I think then we've arrived at something a lot like much of Western, particularly evangelical Christianity. But Jesus says in this setting, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Not exactly the kind of talk that fills a stadium. right? This isn't feel-good American religion Jesus is talking about. It's about caring so damn much about other people that you're willing to actually lay down your life for them. And all of this is before the transfiguration even happens. Some of you are like, wait, just now we're going to get to today's text? But sometimes we need a little background, right? We need a little background before we jump right into a story. So on to the transfiguration. At the very beginning of his work or his ministry, if you'll recall, Jesus first stepped down, so to speak, into a river to be baptized with water. 
And now, here at perhaps the midpoint way of his work, and after he's just realized all that he's going to have to go through, he steps up onto the mountain and receives a second baptism, so to speak. This time a baptism of fire. And amidst this shining appearance of Jesus, a cloud appears overhead which overshadows them. And then alongside Jesus appears Elijah and Moses who talk with him. Perhaps this vision will afford Peter and us the clarity we're searching for. Peter blurts out, it's fortunate that they are there and so that they should perhaps erect some tents. The Greek word there for tents is skene, which can also be translated tabernacle uh, or temple. And so I think there's a couple levels of meaning uh, in Peter's response. One is that maybe he misread the cloud as just bad weather. Right? It's dark. It's going to be stormy. It's going to rain. Let's make some tents here. We can't have Elijah and Moses getting all wet. So maybe that's one uh, thing that's going through Peter's mind. Secondly, it might be that he just wants to preserve the experience, right? There they are on this mountaintop where the light is shining. Much better to stay there than down below where it's darker and things are a bit less clear. But thirdly, and perhaps unconsciously, Peter is anticipating his own future of building churches. This Greek word can imply a sort of religious structure. And so when he's out of his mind with fear, so to speak, his default response is, let's build a temple. Maybe he's not up to the mystery and he can just retreat inside this structure. He's terrified, perhaps, by this shining of Jesus and huddled inside this temple tent. He won't have to look on it. Carol notes that churches, by their very nature, are hostile to fire. They need to extinguish it. In other words, churches are actually hostile to the inbreaking of the holy or the inbreaking of God. A pretty serious charge. Maybe there's something to it. But what of the voice that speaks? It's worth noting that the voice from the cloud is the second and last time that God intercedes or speaks in this gospel narrative. That's also true for all of the gospel stories. And so it will turn out to have been perhaps a farewell or an exit blessing. It's almost as if God and the great Jewish founding fathers, Elijah and Moses, are handing off the baton. to Jesus and to those who would come after him. This is the last time that a figure like Yahweh appears in a historical narrative in all of the Bible. That's it. But how instructive that the last word we have from God in history is listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Not construct temples to Jesus, not create elaborate theologies about Jesus, but listen to him. Now this can create anxiety. Because Jesus defies our expectations. He doesn't fit neatly into our categories as much as we might like that. We, like Peter, want to preserve a picture of Jesus that we've constructed. Perhaps a Jesus who looks a little bit like us. 
or me in this case, with white skin and blue eyes and blondish hair. Or a Jesus who fits neatly into a theological puzzle. Or a Jesus whose sole mission is to support our ideologies, whatever they are. Instead, the call is simply to listen. Listen and not assume we know what we're going to hear. Listen and be willing to be surprised. Listen and maybe even be transformed. We have many names for Jesus, or titles perhaps. Savior, Lord, Son of God, Messiah, Prince of Peace, Lamb of God, Teacher, Friend. And how we use those titles and names are in some ways a product of the traditions that have formed us, but they're also a product of our own personal experiences. And they hold meaning at different levels for each of us. Now, is the most important thing to have absolute clarity about who Jesus was? To be able to nail down his metaphysical properties and give theological precision that would impress even the best scholars? I don't think so. What does matter, it seems to me, is to hear that voice. Listen to him. Because if we truly listen, we may well find ourselves transformed and shining and full of light. Who was Jesus? We haven't fully answered that question this morning, but that's intentional. Perhaps Albert Schweitzer, the German doctor, musician, missionary, theologian who was born in 1875, put it best in his own wrestling with this question. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old by the lakeside. He came to those who knew him not. He speaks to us the same words, follow me and sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship, and as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. Amen. And namaste. Would you pray with me? O God of mystery and light, we thank you for this one sent among us who dazzles us, who presents to us a picture of humanity so compelling that we return again and again and again. Thank you for this last instructive word to listen. May we be open. May we be available. And may we hear. In Jesus' name, amen.
invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Thank you.